The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening. I am on. My name is Mike Robinson. If you guys don't know me, um, I am a shepherding elder. I'm also uh, a teacher at Pacific Bible College. I teach theology there. I'm the president of the college. And as a teacher, thank you very much, I expect class interaction. So I am going to be asking questions, and they're not rhetorical questions. I do want you to answer them. Um, if we get through the notes, we get through the notes. I'm not that worried about it. Um, there is a handout that Aaron's going to hand out. Um, basically, kind of copied what um, was given out last week to kind of give you an idea to take some notes on. Um, it's certainly not going to cover everything that I'm going to cover, but it does get some, some of the highlights. Um, so Sam asked me to fill in for him, and he and his wife are celebrating a couple of days of respite and relaxation. Um, so praise God for that. And as Aaron's handing this out, I'm going to open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you so much for the book of Genesis and um, the book of beginnings and all that it means, all that it uh, will ever mean uh, to your people. So we lift this time to you. We pray that your spirit and your word speak to our hearts, mold, shape us, transform us to be more effective as your people. In your son's name, amen. So as a teacher, what did you learn last week? You covered... Genesis 1 through 11, I believe, right? So what did you learn? So you were born in Adam and then reborn in grace? Oh, Christ. Okay. Born of Adam. So let me tease that out a little bit. Um, maybe use a little different language. Um, in Christ, what God has done is created a new race. We, the people of God, are that new race. Initially, God created man and woman in the, in the Garden of Eden, and in that garden was a kingdom. God reigned. He had his people, and he had his place, and he was ruling. What happened? Sin, right? Thing called a serpent, apple tree, the whole thing went south, right? God did some things. The people had to get out of, the, out of the garden. And what happened after that? Chapters 5 through 11. What's that? The ark? Cain and Abel? So, so God's people... Or the human race at this point, still Adamites, if you want to call us that, were growing, expanding, and, and getting, worse. getting worse. Getting worse. One of the saddest verses that I know of in the Bible is Genesis 6. I got to take these off. So I'm just going to start at uh, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, 
and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. That's always the saddest uh, that makes me almost tear up every time I read that. So the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind. So what did he do? He wiped out mankind, right? Noah came along. He chose Noah. He chose, selected a righteous man, and, and he maintained a remnant, right? This is a biblical theme throughout all of the Bible that God always maintains a remnant. And one of the things we can take comfort in as we progress in the 21st century and we begin or we continue to be pushed out on the fringes of our culture and the fringes of our society is that God is faithful. God is taking care of his family. He's taking care of his people whenever, whatever will take place. We will have an ark. We will have uh, a safe way to survive. And we can always take comfort in that. Okay, so, so the waters receded, then what happened? They, they, they went out and they started over, right? In a sense, if we read it, it was a kind of a, re, a brand new beginning, right? A, re, a re-covenant, if you will. It was a Noahic covenant. It was a little bit different than what he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. But very similar. Go out, multiply, flourish, right? He gave them the earth. New start. They knew God better. They knew the rules better. What happened? Same thing, right? Same thing. And then it culminated in what? What event? Chapter 11. What? Tower of Babel. What happened there? What's that? They tried to build this tower and basically usurp God's authority, right? Or tried to prove to themselves they didn't need a God and become their own God. So what did God do then? Okay. So that brings us to the middle of chapter 11, which is probably about where you stopped. Did you go through the genealogy or not? Do you want to go through the genealogy? Okay, we won't go through the genealogy. We will come back to one verse in the genealogy. It's important. Um, One of the things that Sam mentioned to me that he wanted me to make sure that you guys got communicated in is we're looking at the oldest book in the Bible by most people's, by most... most, uh, scholars understanding probably written by Moses at least most of it was probably written by Moses probably during what time do you, do you go into any of this do you talk about any of this probably during the 40 years in the wilderness was when most of it was compiled it was probably edited after Moses's death because there's definitely some editorial comments in the book um, but in general it's attributed to Moses uh, how is that relevant to us today in the 21st century church. And so I thought about that and I said, well, why don't we start in the New Testament where we're all familiar with and, and look backwards at how we should be interpreting Genesis having been saved in Christ, having become a part of the kingdom. And so that's how I want to start and, and look 
with that lens at the remaining parts of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there, <laughs> um, unfortunately. But what I want to start first is I want to actually start with uh, what the Apostle Paul told to the Galatians. So if you would look in your Bibles, go to chapter 3. And would somebody, we'll, we'll try this. I don't know if it'll work. Would somebody read verses 15 and 16? If it's not loud enough, I'll read it. Galatians? Verses 15 and 16, you, need to, you probably need to speak fairly loud, especially with... Okay, so on your fill-in here, where it says, where are we starting our biblical review, you can write Galatians 3, 15 and 16. And those of you that are more astute in the Bible can pick out where Paul got this quote about Abraham's seed. Does anybody know where that came from in the Old Testament? Genesis what? It's from the Abrahamic covenant. So we'll get to it. We'll, we'll read it. Who, who is the seed? He makes a very, very deliberate theological and hermeneutical argument. Does everybody know what hermeneutics is? Hermeneutics is, is, is the science of interpreting the Bible. It's how we logically and rationally understand and interpret the scripture. So hermeneutically, Paul is making a significant argument here, saying it doesn't say plural, it says singular. So what does he mean by that? Why is he making such a big deal out of that? I thought I saw a hand. It's a big deal because seeds would mean a people. Seed would mean one person. And so who does Paul name as that one person? Who is the seed? It's Christ. So if the Abraham covenant includes this talk about a seed, and the seed turns out to be Jesus, then that would be the question to the next question on your, on your thing. Who is identified as important in this text? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the guy that Paul named as the seed. Well, why did he come? Why did Jesus come? Why did, why, yeah, we, absolutely. Why did he come? To save the world? To reestablish a relationship? These are all right. There's not, a, but there's a specific one that I'll answer it with, but these are all right. What's that? To, to Bruce, that 315, Genesis 315. Accomplish the plan. That's, that's good Ephesians talk. I love that book. Let's go look at what Jesus said. So let's start with Matthew 4, 
And let's just read, let's just read verse 17. So this is, uh, Jesus has come, just come back from his temptation. So he's just beginning his, his formal professional ministry, if you want to call it that. He begins to preach and he says this. From that time on, Jesus began to pre- preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven terminology. Everyone else uses the kingdom of God. And I'm going to use the kingdom of God. Most scholars and most uh, theologians would say they're synonymous. And so for the sake of tonight, we're going to assume those two terms are synonymous. So Matthew says Jesus is preaching about the kingdom. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. And starting at verse 14, after John was put in prison, this is um, John the Baptist. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What's good news mean? The gospel. We call it the gospel. So according to Jesus, the gospel is, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. So as where we might say the gospel is forgiveness of sins and eternal life, Jesus wouldn't. Jesus said it was the kingdom of God. So now one other gospel, we'll go to Luke. And again, right after he's been tempted... Um, he's rejected at Nazareth. They kick him out. He starts healing ministry. And at verse 40, I'll start at verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. So why did he come? To preach the kingdom, and, and according to these three texts. And, and we'll, we know, because of other texts that we're not going to go into, that he actually brought the kingdom with him. And we're not going to go into it, but there's a term called inaugurated. Are you guys familiar with that? Inaugurated is, a, is when you hear, hear the word inaugurated kingdom, what it means is it's already here but not yet fully realized. So we have, in, as the people of God, we are experiencing the rule of God in our lives every moment. And yet it's not fully realized. If we walk out that door, we're back in a sinful and broken world. We're in a sinful and broken world now, and yet... Because of Christ, his person, and his work, we get to experience and live in the heavenly realities that exist. Does that make sense? So when we say the kingdom of God, that's what I mean. Right now, we live, in a sense, biblically, we're in heaven, just as we are with Christ, right? Christ is at the right hand of God. We are at the right hand of God. So in one uh, in one context, in one dimension, or in one reality, we are with Christ, with God in heaven. And we, 
experience all of God's blessings that anything else in heaven experiences. On the flip side, we're still in a broken world. We're still here. Why? Well, it goes back to Genesis 12. Because God has a plan. We are a part of that plan. It's a long way to get to Genesis 12. But, let me just finish up a little bit. Why did Jesus come to bring the kingdom? The kingdom was central to Jesus' teachings. The kingdom was why he came. And Jesus brought it with him. In a sense, when we get to the, the finish line of the plan, we end up at Revelation 22. We end up in the etern- what's called theologically the eternal state. Sin is dealt with. Sin is no more. We live in a place with God face to face. It's considerably more advanced or it's higher or whatever terminology you want to do than it was in Genesis 2. So the work of the person of Christ brings us to a point that was much greater than Adam and Eve ever realized. That's the, that's the end goal. And that's why Jesus came, to create that point in, in, in God's economy. What is the definition of the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you a simple definition. It's God's people in God's prepared place under God's rule. God's people in God's prepared place under God's rule. And if you think about the Garden of Eden, you guys talked about this last week, when it was, when at the end of chapter 2, this is like the, the perfect scene. You have Adam and Eve naked standing before God in the garden, unashamed, pure, innocent, in, in fellowship, perfect fellowship with God. God walked with them in the garden. And then it's been downhill since then. But Christ brought with the kingdom and that is the beginning of the renovation plan. So, if Jesus was the consummation of the work God started with Abraham back in Genesis 12, and Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God with him, then is it not the lens of the kingdom that we should use to look at Genesis 12 through 50? So as we read it, I want you to be, I want you to think with the kingdom mindset in the back of your mind as kind of helping to interpret, I got all kinds of stuff in here, Uh, helping you interpret it. Read it, read it from our perspective. Read it that God has communicated me something through this for me today. It's not just a history lesson. It's not just a story of characters, a narrative of events that God worked in human history. It's there for him to speak to you. It's there for him to help you understand who he is. Not just how he was then. Who he is today in your life and who we are as his people. All right. So, if I were to say one thing or ask you what one thing comes to mind when you think of Genesis 12 through 50, what would it be? And does, there's no, again, there's no right or wrong answers. So, what would it be? Biblically, what would you think of if I said we're going to go to Genesis 12 through 50? 
the Abrahamic covenant. That's what would come to my mind too. Anything else? It's a lot of characters, right? A lot of people that we have heard biblical stories of since we were kids. And we'll get to some of those, but I want to I want to spend a little time on the covenant first since it is so central. So again, up until uh, this point in the Bible, the first 11 chapters, God has been working with man really as a whole, as a race, as a human race, as, as, as descendants of Adam. And he starts a new plan. He starts a renovation plan in a different flavor with Genesis 12, actually the, the end of chapter 11. But let's just look at chapter 15 real quick. And let me walk you through what the covenant says. And again, think about the kingdom as I'm reading through this. Starting at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. That shield actually is, uh, in the Hebraic, king. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I am... I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So if anybody asks you the definition of faith, go to, go to Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So uh, the, the, the Hebrew term for uh, a covenant is barit. And it literally means to cut. Um, and so what they would do, what is described here is, is a ritual that they would do at that time. They would cut a carcass. They would um, sacrifice, in a sense, an animal, cut the carcasses in the half, and then the two parties would walk between it. And that would mean that if I don't keep my part of the covenant, I would be like one of these cut animals and die. Okay, so that's what... That's what's going on here. So God is preparing that. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me? So, as, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation that serves, uh, they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached 
its full measure. And then verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So Abram didn't walk between the pieces. God walked between the pieces. And on that day then, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and then the land of all of these. So, so because God walked through there, it's what's called an unconditional covenant. There's no conditions that he has for us or for Abram or Abram's descendants to have to do anything. God is committed to keeping his promise, to keeping the covenant. So there's nothing that we can do today, just as there was nothing that Abram could do then, to get out of that covenant. Does that make sense? It's called unconditional. We should take a lot of comfort in that. So there's something key in here that I mentioned that relates to the kingdom. Did, it, did anybody hear it? What did God promise to give them? The land. And what did I say? There's three things in the kingdom, right? There's a people, there's a place, and there's a king. Um, so he needs a land. And just as Garden of Eden was God's prepared land for mankind. I don't know if did you guys go into that last week. So he created the, the, the whole cosmos, right? But then he specially created this unique little place called the Garden of Eden. And that's where he put man. Well, that was God's prepared place. And as you know, later on, God prepares the land of Canaan. And in, in the, the book, the texts that we're going to be looking at, 12 through 50, God clearly gives and moves Abram, becomes Abraham, to Canaan and gives him the land. So God is putting things in place again to reestablish an earthly kingdom. Okay. So as we go through these chapters quickly, keep that in your mind. God is, is doing something. These things aren't happening randomly, and he's just walking alongside these, his people. He's moving and directing all kinds of events towards reestablishing his kingdom, ultimately in Christ. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? All right. So let's look at some texts. Um, I told you I wanted to start at the end of chapter 11 in the middle of the genealogy. Um, and there's a reason. It's really, you, uh, and I don't want to read through the genealogy, but it's, you know, basically I'm just going to pick one out. When Surug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Surug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And it just repeats that way. One of the reasons for genealogies and, and why this genealogy is here, many scholars say, is proof that God is still upholding his blessings. And one of the blessings is what? I can't hear you. Children. Multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, as we will see, and as you probably already know, many of the women in Genesis 12 through 50 are barren. 
right? They can't have kids. And in that time frame, in that culture, if a woman couldn't produce a child, she didn't have a means of living because it was part of the economy to have kids and, more, and workers to, to survive. Many, many times in, in, this, in this whole string of God's plan, he deliberately works with someone like Sarah, who was barren, so that, they may have a guess why, so no one else can get the glory, right? It's obviously God's hand when a barren woman ultimately has a child at 100 years old, right? Or 90 years old. So, so you're going through this genealogy, you get to the account 27, the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in the Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was a daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. That should just, as a reader, should just throw up a red flag. Wait a minute. That's kind of out of the, out of the ordinary. And so we come to find out, and, and you already know, why that's such a big deal, right? We already read a little bit about it. Abram is saying, well, God, at that, that point, I'm already 75 years old. I don't have a kid yet. How is this going to happen? You're telling me I'm going to get a land? How am I going to know I'm getting a land? I can't even get a, uh, an offspring. All right. It, it, it's a theme, though, that I want you to remember. That it calls out that a special act of God will be made and will be needed to continue the plan. So the plan isn't happening automatically. God is having to actively engage in human history to continue to propagate the plan. Does that make sense? It's a key thing because, especially in this culture, every culture believed back then in gods. But what makes the, the God of Israel so unique? One of the things is this, is that he actively moves for his glory, for purposes beyond human understanding. All right, so Genesis 13, 10 through 8. This is another section I want to look at. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain. So uh, let me set this context. So Abraham and Lot are traveling together back to Canaan, or to Canaan for the first time. They get to the plain of Jordan. Has anybody been to Israel? From, and you, you come down Galilee and drive down through the, the plain of Jordan. So for those of you that haven't, um, you're familiar with the name of the Sea of Galilee. It's above sea level. You go down the Jordan River into this, what now is a big desert where the Dead Sea is. Um, to, if you're going down to your right is um, the hills up to Jerusalem. And on the top of that ridge is the Mount of Olives. And you drop down into Jerusalem. It's about... 2,000 feet elevation, it's about 20 miles. Um, but at this point, that whole plain, if you've been to Israel, that was all fertile and watered farmland, which it is not today if you go there. Um, 
it's artificially watered, but the farther you get to the Dead Sea, the more of a desert it becomes. Lot had become an obstacle to Abram. And I don't have time to go into it. But Abram didn't take action against Lot, but God did. They got to this point, and they were both very large households. They had thousands of animals. They had tens of people with them, servants, everybody. It was too big to stay together. So Abram asked Lot, which, which way do you want to go? I'll go the other. So Abram, uh, or Lot went to the left, and Abram chose to go to the right. It was their decision, and yet it was sovereign. God wanted Abram to go to the right because that was the land of Canaan. It was on the inside, if you will, the promised land side of the Jordan, whereas Lot went on the east or the bad side of um, the Jordan River. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament, going east is bad. No matter where you... The, when they left Eden, which way did they go? They went east. When, when Adam and Eve left and when, when the, the, the population of mankind developed, it was east. So don't go east. I'm just kidding. Um, but in, in, when you're reading the Old Testament, keep that in your mind. If it says they went east, there's a good chance it it's means away from God. Okay? Um, so God gives land to the father of his new people. At this point, none of this is, a, Abram is not aware of any of this. But God is doing mighty things through this man called Abram. Um, Genesis 15, we've already read that. Um, based on Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, when I read Matthew, or, uh, Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you compare that with what Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and again, you're thinking with a kingdom concept, faith is... The ticket, if you will, or the money, if you will, the currency of access to the kingdom. Faith is what it takes to get into God's plan, to get into the kingdom. Okay? And, and Abram was our father, our example of that faith. Let's go to Genesis 18 now. So we're just going to, I'm just picking certain events as we skip through this big book. Genesis 18. What happens in Genesis 18? Does anybody remember? What's that? Yeah. What, what happens with does Abraham, Abraham at this point have visitors, right? There's, there's three visitors that come to Abraham and Sarah. Do you guys remember that story? Let me, uh, let me just skip it so, or skip through it. So I'll just, you can, try, you can follow along, but I'm not going to read everything. So I'm just going to read highlights of chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham 
looked up and saw the three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. He wants to give them a little bit of water, a little bit of food, wash their feet, and then three gentlemen say, okay. Abraham hurried into the tent, said to Sarah, quick, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. He ran to the herd, chose a calf, butchered it, and while they ate, uh, one of the three asked Abraham, where is your wife Sarah? There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord, now again, this, this, he's in human form, which should, should be fascinating to you, I hope. Uh, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. What's Sarah's response? She's in the tent. She laughs, which I can't say that I blame her. She's advanced in years, as it says. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? But the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will you really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And, and that, that could, one sense, be the theme of Genesis. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Um, obstacle after obstacle from a human standpoint appear to thwart his plans, thwart the efforts, and yet it just works. Whether it's supernatural, where he actually deliberately does a, a mighty supernatural act, or it's just a coordination of events, of people's lives, his plan continues to move forward. Um, and then, then after this, uh, starting at verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a, become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And so then the Lord explains he's going to do what to Sodom and Gomorrah? He's going to destroy him. And what, is, what does Abraham do? It's, it's intercessory prayer, right? And, and so, and this is an obvious one, but it's still worth noting for us today that if Abraham, that, that the Lord listened to Abraham then to save wicked cities, how much more so is he going to listen to us when the king is at his right hand on the throne? If, if Abraham can pray to God and say, if there's 50 righteous people, will you save them? How much more so will he listen to us, his children, his adopted kids? Um... One of my favorite narratives is Genesis 22. Let's go there. So what happens in, in Genesis 22? So this is the uh, sacrifice of Isaac. Okay. 
This is an amazing story. And I wish we could spend a lot more time on it. So God calls Abraham to test him. He says, Abraham, here I am. He replied, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It's most likely one of the two, they call them mountains in Jerusalem. They're really not much more than small little bumps. But it's probably, uh, if it's not the one where the temple is, it's the one right across from it. Um, that's probably the mountain that, that they're talking about here. So Abraham, being the obedient one, packs everybody up and gets going. He's got some servants. He's got a donkey. He's got some wood. Um, verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to the father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham's reply, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. So you, you probably all have seen different pictorial uh, reproductions of this. Um, but here's... Here's Abraham over his son. His son is laying there. And then one thing we forget about is Isaac and all this, right? Um, he's laying there basically in obedience, right? He's not fighting. He's not, you know, running away. He's laying there. And, and just at the, at the last moment, the, the, the Greek or the Hebrew is a little bit more... Uh, immediate or uh, excitable than the English translation. Um, the very last moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, here, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything, on, anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from me, your son, your only son. Sounds familiar to us that know about Jesus. Who else, who didn't withhold his son for us? Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. The Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. It's an amazing story of faith. Um, I, I skipped something that I want to go back and read. Um, Verse 5, so, so when they were traveling, he had servants with him. And in verse 5, Abraham says to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. 
Now, Abram knew what he was doing. Abraham knew what he was going to do, right? He knew he was called to sacrifice Isaac. Why is he saying we? Yeah, exactly. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So not only did, Isaac, or did Abraham walk by faith, he actually rationally understood it so that he believed he was going to kill Isaac and God was going to resurrect him. It's an amazing story. And it's so reflective of what? Of Christ, right? I mean, you've got everything is almost identical. It's almost exactly parallel. It's amazing. Um, so theologically, it's important, obviously, not just because of the parallels with Christ, but the fact that God himself establishes substitutionary atonement. Does everybody know that's a big word theologically? It's basically what Christ did for us. So Christ was our substitute. So he took our sin and, it's a big and, and he took God's wrath associated with that sin on the cross. And he was our substitute for both. And it's reflective, it was established, or that, that way of accomplishing the plan of God was laid, the foundation was laid right here in Genesis 22. You see that? Okay. Moving on, Genesis 24 through 28. This talks about Isaac and Jacob. So Isaac was the son of Abraham, Jacob is the son of Isaac, and... I'm just going to read some things that I took notes on um, for brevity. Uh, God again must intercede. So Rebecca was barren. And so again, uh, Isaac prays to God to open her womb, and he does, to continue the plan. God sovereignly chooses who he wants. So you've got the whole story of Jacob and Esau going on. What happens there? At birth, what happens? Let's start at the, let's start at the beginning. So at, at birth, what happens with Jacob and Esau? He, yeah, he grabs his hand. And then uh, at the end, when they're being blessed, what happens? He steals. <laughs> he and his mother deceive the father and steal the birthright. And God honors that. That's part of God's plan. Now, I don't want to go into the theology of that, but it should stretch your theology a little bit to realize God's going to use bad choices and deception to accomplish his plan. And he does it today. 
Um, another insight that's pretty apparent in this text or in this section is God's people, Jacob in particular, sin. And they sin a lot. And despite it, God uses and is faithful. He's faithful to his father Abraham and he's faithful to his covenant and he's faithful to his kingdom plan to continue to work it out and continue to move it forward. Removing obstacles when he needs to, putting obstacles in place when he needs to thwart human plans. Um, And finally, God gives blessings out of his commitment to his promises. So even though Jacob never really earned anything from God, God blessed him out of God's faithfulness to his own word and to his covenant. Okay, irregardless of how Jacob acted. All right, Genesis 30 through 35. We're still talking about Jacob. Um, Again, the notes that might have jealousy and deception of Jacob's household. Now, you can read you can read this section and just shake your head. Uh, in chapter thirty, you've got all these women sending their concubines, and it's just it's just unbelievable. And then you've got Jacob uh, lying, deceiving to get his flocks built up, and God blesses all of this. He increases his his family he, with with people, with babies, with with kids. He increases his flocks, etc., etc., etc. So despite the, the sin and the outright deception, God blesses, protects, and honors his covenant. Let's go to uh, chapter 32. So, so Jacob and Esau, Esau, what happened? What was Esau's response when Jacob stole his birthright? Yeah, I want to kill him. So, what did Jacob do? He ran away. Smart man. So he's called back, chapter 32. He's called back to the land. And to, uh, so, so being Jacob, Jacob creates this elaborate plan to try and soothe the, the path and break down any of his brother's anger, right? Without trusting again, one of the highlights theologically of Jacob is he never trusted God. And this is another showing that he's going to take it into his own hands to try and not get killed. So he goes through all of this stuff, um, sending things out ahead of him. He stays behind and picking up at chapter 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jebuk. And after he had sent them across the stream, he went over all his he sent over all his possessions. Now Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered him. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, 
but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So in one sense, again, with the kingdom lens on, we can look at this on an individual basis of our own salvation. Each one of us has to come home. We have to get into the promised land. Jacob is about ready to get, go back into Canaan. What's, what did I say the, the entrance key was? The faith. At some point, many of us, many, some don't, many of us have to wrestle with God before we give up our allegiance, before we accept him. So this wrestling that, that, that Jacob, who becomes Israel, goes through is symbolic and practical at the same time. Many of, of Jesus' followers go through it. Does that make sense? We, we, we're stubborn. We're stiff-necked, just like Jacob. We don't want to give up. And God is more than willing to wrestle with us. He invites it. And he'll wrestle as long as you have strength. But he will win, and he will call you, and, and, and you will end up in the kingdom. Um, the last major section, Genesis 37 through 50. So the first 12 through 36 is really talking about the patriarchic fathers in the land of Canaan. This last section talks about Joseph, and Joseph is where? He's in Egypt. He, God again, sovereignly arranges events for him to get transplanted to Egypt. So he's sold into slavery because of jealousy. And, G and God begins to move his people towards Egypt. Now, again, that should ring a bell in your minds that didn't God mention that already? If you go back to, and you don't need to turn there, I'll read there. But back in Genesis 15, um, at verse 13, the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and forward, afterward you will come out with great possessions. So that part of the plan is now starting to be unfolded. And so he's migrating his people. At this point, his people revolves around Jacob and all of Jacob's family. Now, it's a big, there's a bunch of people. It's probably well over 100 people and thousands of animals and quite a bit of money. So it's its, its own little community. But that's so far, that's all there is to this, this you know, counting the stars can is, is more than your offspring type numbers that God has promised. Um, 39, chapter 39 deals with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. What happens with Joseph and Potiphar's wife? She tries to seduce him. And what does he do? She grabs his cloak, he rips off, lets, leaves the cloak with her, runs away. Flee, I think is, is uh, the, the word. And then turns the table and, and says, he tried to rape me. 
So what happens to Joseph? Gets thrown in jail. And what does God do? God gives him the opportunity and, and the supernatural gift to interpret dreams. So there's two guys that were in the king's court and had gotten thrown into jail with Joseph. They had dreams. Joseph was able to interpret those dreams. One of them was, recon uh, was, was put back on the court. One of them was killed. But a couple years later, that same guy that was reinstated on the court did what? So, so Pharaoh had a dream. So Pharaoh had this dream, and none of his wisdom people, none of his religious people could understand it or interpret it. But this gentleman, this cupbearer, remembered Joseph. And so he told the Pharaoh, I know of a man that can read, that can interpret that dream. Lo and behold, here, comes, here comes Joseph. And well, let's just pick it up. Um, chapter 41, verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly bought, brought from the dungeon, where he had shaved and changed his clothes. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So he tells him his dream. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh that he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is, the, it is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. Skip over to verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So here you go from getting thrown in jail by Potiphar's wife to being put second in command of Egypt. It's an amazing God that we serve. I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna skip my remaining notes. I just wanna get to the takeaways. So at the bottom of your notes, there's some statements and some fill-ins, and I will give you those fill-ins. Number one, Abraham did not simply have faith. He embraced faith. He didn't just have faith. He embraced it. Embraced it. God spoke to Abraham eight times over a hundred years. And he didn't get to either choose when that occurred or the topic. He often was more confused after he was talked to than before. And we must ask ourselves today, what would we rather have? Would we rather have eight direct conversations with God over the course of our lifetime that we are not in control of? Or would we rather have this and the Holy Spirit interpreting it for us? We often say, oh, it would be great if God spoke to us. We often hold up Ab Abraham and think of, oh, if I was only like Abraham. I only had... God speaking to me. I don't know about you, but I would choose this and the Spirit. Not that being talked to by the Lord wouldn't be bad, 
but this is better by far. Number two, God removes obstacles from our path towards fulfilling his plan. Fulfilling his plan. It may look like he's not, and that could be for a lot of reasons. It could be that the plan's still unfolding. It could be you're thinking of it as your plan, not his, and he's got a different plan. It could be a variety of reasons, but God is always removing obstacles for his people. Not just because he loves us, because he's a good, good father, but because he has a plan and we are a tool in that plan. Three, God continues to bless his people. God continues to bless his people. If you're here tonight and you need a new act of working, Genesis means beginnings. If you need a new beginning, you know, come up with me, come up and pray with me. Um, there's others around I, I don't see. Anyway, God is a God of new beginnings. God is a faithful God that wants to bless his people and bless you as well. He did it throughout Genesis 12 through 50, despite horrendous actions by his, by his people, others as well. But his own people were doing the same things, and he still blessed them, and he blesses us today. Uh, the next one, the driving purpose of Genesis is the revelation of God. It's the revelation of who he is and how he works. One, one uh, quote that I have in my notes, the whole foundation of Christian religion is laid out in Genesis. Scripture itself depends on the declarations the book makes. You can go into the New Testament and you can find the Gospels, you can find Jesus, you can find the Epistles, you can find Revelation. All reference things in Genesis. We mentioned the one about the um, sacrifice of Isaac and how critical that was that Jesus fulfilled all of that. Uh, time and time again in the New Testament, they go back to the, the theology of Genesis or the narrative of Genesis. And finally, number six, the kingdom is here because of Genesis. So without Genesis, without that covenant to Abraham, none of the kingdom would have started. That was the beginning point that Jesus has culminated and ultimately will bring in uh, the eternal state. I'm sorry, what was number four? God is still a God of Beginnings. Beginnings, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Maybe I didn't say that one. Did I skip it? All right. I'm a little late. I'm sorry. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for calling us to be your people. It blows our minds um, to think that you thought of us before you said, let there be light, that you thought of us when you were speaking to Abraham and establishing your covenant, that we uh, through your seed, through your son, are fulfilling. I just pray that your spirit and your word burn that into our hearts and our minds. Help us to be transformed by it. Help us to be motivated by it.
Help us to live it, Father, in your name. Amen.